Would you please open your Bibles with me to Philippians chapter 1. We're going to return this morning, this new year, to our study of this marvelous book of joyful fellowship in Christ, Philippians chapter 1. And I'm going to pick up in a new passage in this chapter, beginning in verse 12, and I'd like to read down through verse 20. Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. And you can follow along in your Bibles down through verse 20. The Apostle Paul writes, Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ according to my earnest expectation and hope that will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. And we'll begin our time with prayer. Father, as we enter into this time of worship where your word is the focus of our attention, we cry out to you, pleading with you, and asking of you that which we know you desire to give to us through the ministry of your spirit, that our hearts and minds will be open to understand, to know you, to see more clearly the majesty of your love, your sanctifying work, and to give us discernment in regard to the Word of God and applying it to our lives. We need help in these things, and I pray that you will grant it to us now. Bless me with the ability to speak clearly on these matters, but I pray that all of us will have open hearts and minds by the moving of your Spirit among us this morning, that we might know you more clearly, that we might love your Son, and that we might serve you under the Spirit's work in the freedom and the bearing of fruit that you desire for your church. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I was noticing in the news um, that because this is the new year, the legislators, the congresses and stuff throughout the states, throughout the nation, are beginning their new sessions and they're already planning new strategies. Um, And it was uh, being boasted on, at least in our local television, that Washington State Legislature will be gathering together under their new meeting times with a new agenda. And because there is a new regime in place, they have probably an agenda that many of us don't appreciate necessarily. And this is typical of the new year. They open up new fields of endeavors that they're going to go after as politicians. But I also noticed in the news that this was back, I think, in Pennsylvania. A man was arrested because he married a woman having already been married to the woman's mother. Now, this is kind of confusing, but he was still married to the mother had not yet divorced her, and now was marrying the daughter, and it landed him in jail. Well, at the same time this is going on, in Utah there are protests now being 
leveled against the government to do away with the laws of polygamy, um, protesting that we have a right to marry whom we do. And, you know, given the direction and the climate, the political climate of our nation, and what is being described as a revolution of sexual identities and, and what is appropriate for marriage and the changing of the laws, really what is preventing this nation from giving the rights or the freedoms of people to marry whomever they choose? In, in fact, if you throw out God as we are doing in this country, what really limits us any longer to any sense of morality other than what man determines is right in his own eyes? And that really is a description of where America is going, even in this new year. Man doing what is right in their own eyes. This is a time of year when generally you hear about New Year's resolutions. And people make determinations that they want to change some pattern of life. Generally, they're not bad resolutions like losing weight or getting more exercise or becoming more healthy or, or getting out of debt and uh, maybe even social kinds of things like meeting the man or the woman of your dreams, if that's possible in this day and age. But for believers, making spiritual commitments that we know are needed uh, may also be changes that are good and healthy for us. I've never been really big on New Year's resolutions, but I don't see uh, the bad in them necessarily, providing they have a good outcome, if they're focused on what we do need to change in our life. I mean, the beginning of a year is probably a good time to do those kinds of things. And we determine these resolutions because we believe they are needed in our lives, these changes are needed, and the start of a new year seems like a good place to begin that change. Our text this morning, and I want you to focus your attention on the words of Paul, especially in those beginning verses, verse 12 and beyond, this text this morning expresses the passion of the Apostle Paul for the gospel itself. And the unity shares with the fellowship there in the church in Philippi is very evident. It's implied that those Philippian believers are right on board with Paul's gospel passion. He's speaking to a people that he knows identifies with what drives this man. And it is the proclamation of Christ that is at a priority with Paul. And that's why I've put the heading on this particular message that there is a priority in the mind of the Apostle Paul, there is a priority in his life to be a faithful administer of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is that priority that comes out so loudly and clearly in these verses that we're going to be studying this morning. Now, in our study of this book of Philippians that we ended in last year, we are looking at Paul's unique and very joyful Christian relationship with this church of believers in Philippi. They had this mutual relationship, not only Paul loving them, but a deep love that they had and a care that they had for Paul. And we're going to pick up this morning with our study in verse 12, where Paul begins to identify his circumstances as a prisoner of Rome. Paul does this because he knows that the Philippians are very concerned for his well-being. Now, most scholars agree that Paul was sitting in a Roman com confinement in the city of Rome, confined in the city of Rome, um, while he's writing this letter. And this is compatible, or many believe this is compatible, with Acts chapter 28. So I want to begin a reading of Acts chapter 28 to kind of set the stage for what Paul is expressing to the church in Philippi. 
Now, those of you that know Acts 28 know that Paul has been arrested. The Jews in Jerusalem have tracked down Paul. He was taken to Caesarea. Paul stood before the officials. He, he uh, appealed to Caesar. He was taken captive by the Praetorian Guard. He was put on a boat, set sail for Rome, the city of Rome, and they went into stormy seas. He was in a shipwreck, island of Malta, and eventually, as weather or the season calmed down, Paul ended up in Rome. And this is where we pick up in Acts chapter 28 and follow along in verse 16. Notice the context here. When we had entered Rome, Paul is now being escorted into Rome, chained to a, a Roman soldier. Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who was guarding him. After three days, Paul called together those who were the leading men of the Jews. And when they came together, they began saying to them, Brethren, though I have done nothing against our people of the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. And when they examined me, they were willing to release me because there was no ground for putting me to death. But when the Jews objected, I was forced to appeal to Caesar, not that I had any accusation against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I requested to see you and to speak with you, for I am wearing this chain for the sake of the hope of Israel. And they said to him, We have neither received letters from Judea concerning you, nor have any of the brethren come here and reported or spoken anything bad about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are concerning this sect. It is known to us that it is spoken against everywhere. <clears throat> when they had set a day for Paul, they came to him at his lodging in large numbers, and he was explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets from morning until evening he was doing this. Some were being persuaded by the things that were spoken, but others would not believe. And when they did not agree with one another, began leaving after Paul had spoken one parting word, the Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah the prophet to your fathers, saying, go to this people and say, you will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull, and with their ears they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will also listen. When he had spoken these words, the Jews departed, having a great dispute among themselves. Verse 30. And he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. Now again, it is believed by scholars that this scene in Acts chapter 28 is where Paul is in Philippians chapter 1. He's writing a letter to the Philippians while he is chained to a guard in the city of Rome under his own quarters that he has to pay for out of his own pocket. And he's sitting there waiting for some two years to be heard by Caesar because of his appeal made to Caesar. These are the circumstances that we find the Apostle Paul in and he is voicing those circumstances here in Philippians 1 and verse 12. These are circumstances by which Paul is suffering 
for the sake of Christ and the proclamation of the name of Christ. And so we, we are going to use this suffering as something of a theme in our study this morning because Paul makes known his circumstances at the outset here in verse 12. His circumstances are that he's in prison. He is chained to a guard. And the very reason that he's expressing this is because the Philippians have sent word that they are concerned for Paul by a servant named Epaphroditus. And we're going to learn more about him in chapter 2. So Epaphroditus has come to Paul and he's brought a gift from the Philippian church to minister to his needs because they know that Paul, they've heard that Paul is suffering. And they want to know, how is it going with you? Are you okay? Do you need anything? This is a church that loves this apostle. And they know this man is in need. He's suffering. That's the context we're going to see in our study this morning. A suffering Christian that is enduring trial and affliction for the sake of Christ, whom this man is ministering. He's ministering Christ and his gospel. But I want you to notice in these verses before us, in Philippians chapter 2, though suffering is a theme, it is not the priority here, is it? Notice again the words, very carefully observe here. In verse 12, the gospel is the priority. Verse 16, again, the gospel is the priority. The word of God in verse 14, proclaiming Christ in verse 15, proclaim Christ and preaching Christ, verse 17, 18, what is on Paul's mind is the priority that drives this man. This is his priority to lie in life. And I would suggest that if any of us are looking for a New Year's resolution, this might lead the way. This ought to lead the way. That Christ would be our priority. The proclamation of Christ, the living of Christ, the preaching of Christ, the promotion of his gospel, because this is clearly Paul's priority. Paul's circumstances exist, his suffering, his imprisonment, these circumstances exist only to accomplish the gospel purposes that Jesus Christ has given to him. And Paul expresses great contentment and satisfaction in this as we read in verse 18. I will rejoice in this. And yes, I do rejoice. So here is again a possible New Year's resolution for us. That the proclamation of the gospel would become such a dominating priority in my life that I will rejoice in any circumstance that allows me to promote Christ's name. And I say that connecting the priority of the gospel with suffering because so often the ministry of the gospel involves hardship, trials, difficulties, persecution perhaps even. And this is the theme of suffering that we're seeing in our text before us. So our study is going to have that theme of suffering and at the same time we want to promote as the priority here the gospel proclamation that was so uh, much Paul's passion. It's what drove this man. Now, we might argue that given Paul being who he is as the apostle to the Gentiles, that he has kind of a special and a unique calling. So, yeah, we can understand that this was an all-consuming passion of Paul. But I want you to note that he is writing to a church that has joined with him in this passion. 
Paul is unified together with these believers. And he understands that they are right there with him. Notice in verse 12, brethren, we are together in this. And then as you move to the end of the chapter, notice again how Paul connects their suffering with his own. Verse 29, for to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. There's the unity of ministry there. It's not just Paul the Apostle that should have this priority, this gospel priority, whereby he suffers for the name of Christ. These Philippian believers were doing the same, and he's commending them for it. The two of them, the body of Philippi and Paul, they're joined in unity in this thing. And therefore, as we talk about this suffering issue and this gospel priority, we are not talking about something that's unique to the Apostle Paul. It doesn't matter if you are an apostle or a farmer or a tradesman or a marketeer, whatever was going on in Philippi, this was the priority of life. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is wonderfully laid out by Paul in three areas of ministry that we're going to examine this morning and next Lord's Day. The ministry to the unsaved, the ministry to the church, and the ministry to the minister himself, which in this case is the Apostle Paul. We're going to look at that next week, but I'd like to look at those first two this morning. Suffering, beginning with suffering, having influence on the unsaved or the unbeliever. And we see that in verse 12 and 13. Now, Paul begins this discussion focusing on verse 12, with words that are almost intended to bring comfort to the Philippians who are very concerned for Paul. They clearly know that Paul is suffering in his present conditions, and that is why they've sent this care package through Epaphroditus. But listen to how Paul speaks of that gift, and I want you to jump ahead to chapter 4. Listen carefully to the words of Paul as he speaks about this gift. And the idea of the gift here is that it's ministering to some legitimate needs that Paul has. He's a man that is suffering. He has needs. The church has responded. Paul says at the end of the letter how much he appreciates them. But I have received everything in full and have abundance. I'm amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. This is a man that's chained to a Roman guard. He's sitting imprisoned in Rome, and he's having to pay for his own rent to be there. He has needs, and the church has ministered to those needs, and Paul responds by saying, hey, I'm covered. What you gave has been more than enough. But Paul's thinking goes beyond even his own needs. If you back up to verse 17, he says, Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit, which increases to your account. Paul is impressed by what the gift will do for the Philippians. Just the privilege of giving and supporting the gospel ministry, that's what's at the heart of Paul. He knows that as these people give to him, they are giving to the gospel ministry. And again, that's his priority, isn't it? Then you follow up in verse 19. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. This again highlights here is a man that is sitting imprisoned in Rome and just waiting for some two years locked to a stinky, sweaty soldier taken out of the gospel ministry, so to speak, and he's rejoicing that people are supplying his needs. And he's impressed 
with their work because he knows that's advancing the gospel. And so he begins in verse 12 of chapter 1 telling them, I want you to know something. This much, brethren, I want you to know. And then notice that Paul bypasses the details of his own suffering. He bypasses the details of his own imprisonment. He's not concerned with the details of his own suffering and what he's lacking and so forth, but he goes right to the very heart of what he wants these people to know. The gospel is moving forward. I know you're writing. I know you're sending Epaphroditus. I know you're giving this gift to me because you care about my suffering. But I want you to know Not all the facts about my suffering. I want you to know what my suffering is accomplishing for the sake of Christ. His imprisonment for the proclamation of Christ has had an influence throughout the Praetorian Guard and to everyone else connected with Paul's confinement. In other words, these people have heard the gospel preached. Now the Praetorian Guard seems to be at the focus of the attention in verse 12 and 13. And this guard was, uh, at least historically, were 9,000 hand-picked soldiers that were given the honored position of protecting or being the bodyguards of Caesar himself and his household. They were the imperial guard. They received double pay, they received a sizable pension, and they were honored above all the other Roman soldiers. In fact, historians tell us that they had great power even to the extent that they assassinated one emperor and put in place the next. These were honorable men. These were notable men. These are men with great power and influence. And one of the duties given to these men, even beyond guarding Caesar, guarding the household of Caesar, was guarding the prisoners of Caesar. And remember, Paul was one of those, isn't he? He appealed to Caesar, and therefore he became an imperial prisoner. And it is said that these ones that were imperial prisoners were chained to these imperial guards, these praetorian guards, as a show of Caesar's great power and authority. I will take command. I will have control. They will be chained to me. And you notice that Caesar did not quickly move to bring justice to Paul, did he? He chained this man to the guard and he let him rot two years under confinement. I'll get around to the man when it pleases me to do so. And it is said that because these prisoners, as imperial prisoners, were chained to the Praetorian guard, it was a show to Rome that Caesar is control. Caesar has the authority. He's dictating the circumstances. And yet notice how Paul writes here. It is not Caesar that is in control. Paul is declaring, as we see from Acts chapter 28, that when the Jews had tried to execute Paul, Caesar was going to take command of the situation. He appeals to Caesar. Paul appeals to Caesar. As a Roman citizen, he has the right to do so. But appealing to Caesar means you're going to be chained to the guard and you're going to stand before Caesar and you now become his territory his property, he will declare the outcome of this situation. Paul finally does arrive in Rome, and the emperor does not quickly bring justice to Paul, hence the two years being chained to a praetorian guard. And the praetorian guard would have rotating shifts. 
They would be given six hours perhaps, and then they're released, and another guard would come in and be chained to Paul for another six or eight hour shift, and so it would go. For those two years, Caesar presumed to be in control of Paul, but all the while, Jesus Christ used those chains to confine the gospel to that praetorian guard. So who was chained to who? That's what I'm trying to say this morning. And that's what Paul is saying here in verse 12. Yes, I'm a prisoner to Rome. But these guards have been chained to the gospel for two years. Imagine being one of those guards. And you're introduced for the first time to your duty of being the imperial guard to this imperial prisoner. You just learn his name as the Apostle Paul. You come in for your duty. You take out your skin of goat milk and your granola bar. You sit down. You're chained to Paul. And you make the mistake, the grand mistake, of turning to the man and saying, so what's your story? And what does Paul do? He gives them the gospel. For two years, he gives them the gospel. Notice the wording here. It's in Philippians chapter 1. Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. I see almost humor there. It's not intended to be. But the reason it was well known is because those guards were chained to the gospel by Christ. And everyone else that was connected with that confinement, they had the wrong guy. In Christ's mind, he had a right guy in place. Because here was a man that was impassioned with the gospel. And those unsuspecting guards had no idea what was coming. Not only were they hearing from Paul the gospel, but go back to Acts 28. You see the people flowing in and out of his quarters, asking questions. Those guys were having to listen to all these gospel conversations and all the discussions on the church in Rome and all these theological, uh, doctrinal conversations that were going on between Paul and these other believers Paul has a captive audience and his audience is chained to him. They can't go anywhere. And what Paul is saying is that because of it, many of these guards have come to faith in Christ. And not just that, but turn back to chapter 4 again. Philippians chapter 4. And look at verse 22. It says, All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Well, how did Caesar's household hear about all this stuff. It's because chained to Rome was the apostle for the Gentiles. And this man was impassioned with the gospel and he preached to the guard and the guard took care of Caesar's house and people were coming to faith in Christ. But Paul is telling the church I don't want you to despair over my circumstances. In fact, I don't even want to talk about my circumstances because my suffering has accomplished the greater purposes of the gospel. Christ is being proclaimed. The guards are coming to faith in Christ. Those in Caesar's household are hearing the gospel. Many of them are receiving Christ. And on top of that, he is ministering to the church as these people are coming in and out of his quarters for some two years. 
This portrayal shows us two very important realities to Christians who are walking through harsh circumstances because of their faith. Not harsh circumstances because of your own foolishness or your own sins, but this is telling something to the church that is suffering because of and for the glory of Christ. And the first is that there is an opportunity to proclaim the gospel in our suffering. Imagine what it would have looked like 2,000 years ago in that Roman prison confinement, those quarters, if Paul sat there complaining and fighting against and resisting and demanding his own rights and, and proclaiming the injustice of it all. Instead, here is a man that's rejoicing. Why? Because he's chained to this opportunity to preach Christ. And that is his priority. That's his passion. He's privileged to be here suffering because God has clamped the chains to a captive audience. And Paul loves to preach the gospel. So number one, in our suffering for Christ, there is an opportunity to proclaim the gospel. Suffering gives us that opportunity. But number two, there is an opportunity also in our suffering for Christ to rejoice that Christ can be exalted in our suffering, from and through our suffering. And again, that is important to this story too because on the first hand, or the first truth, the suffering Christian calls, or is called to proclaim the gospel. But in the second point that we make here, this speaks to our attitude. How we look at suffering, how we look at trials, how we're rejoicing for the opportunity that we have here to fulfill our priority, our calling. And I say that hoping to apply this to our present context, whatever that may be. When it comes to representing the name of Christ, there is almost always going to be opposition. There's almost always going to be some persecution, some suffering, some resistance to what we're hoping to accomplish. And I know many of us have that kind of persecution, that suffering, even within the context of our own families. Husbands and wives that don't agree with the gospel. Children that wander away from the gospel. And so often when we hit these kinds of hard times, we retreat into kind of a darkness. We retreat into our shell. We turn to anxiety. We turn to fear. Sometimes depression. Even at times physical manifestations overtake our body. We become literally sick because we're distressed about the things that are going on within our families, within our friendships our lost children, our lost parents, or aunts, or uncles. Do you realize that when we step out of this life and into glory, we're not going to be married to each other anymore. We're not going to be biologically related to our children or our parents any longer. But we're going to look back and say that God assigned me the role to be a spouse to that man or woman, to proclaim Christ, I was chained to him or her. I was given the calling to be a parent to that child that resisted the gospel. And what Paul is telling us here in that confinement, in that chaining to that circumstance, see that as a calling, a gospel calling. And Paul chose to rejoice in the privilege that he had. This is a great testimony for the church today, regardless of the circumstance we find ourselves in today. Because our calling should be the same. The priority in life should be the same. Our priority is Christ. 
And this is what Paul is proclaiming to the Philippian believers. He knows they're concerned for his well-being. But he's answering by saying, yes, I'm suffering, but I want you to know that suffering is providing this marvelous opportunity for the gospel. I'm chained to these guards, and some of them are coming to faith in Christ. I'm ministering to the church. Caesar's household has been affected. The priority of my life is being fulfilled in the proclamation of Christ. Secondly, notice as we move on in verse 14, suffering has a supporting influence on the church. And this was also a ministry that Paul wanted the Philippian believers to know. Sitting here chained, in prison in Rome, some are coming to faith in Christ, but it doesn't stop there, he says. I'm finding that others are being encouraged to be bold with the preaching of Christ. Verse 14, and the most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. In verse 17, the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. Now, it's important to remember that there is also a church assembly here in the city of Rome. Paul has not planted this church, but Paul has previously written a very solid doctrinal statement to this church in the book of Romans. And that was written some five, six years before this Philippian document. But there is a following of Christ, a gospel following of Christ in Rome. And in Acts chapter 28, again, we see that these believers are coming to Paul, getting answers, asking questions, learning from Paul, and hearing about this man's ministry. And notice what Paul says here in verse 14, that most of the believers have been greatly encouraged by Paul's testimony to speak more boldly about Christ. He had a positive gospel influence, in other words, on the greater portion of the church in Rome. That's saying a lot. He has this positive influence on the greater or most of the church there in Rome. These Christians had received fresh courage because of how Paul was being used in his suffering. Again, the chains, the suffering is part of the theme here. If uh, Paul was just waltzing around a free man in Rome, it would not have had the same effect. So Paul makes note of that. In my imprisonment, in my chains, people are being encouraged. Here's a man that's suffering a great injustice for serving the Lord, and yet he's rejoicing. He's refusing to be bitter against his enemies and his persecutors. He's actively engaging people for the gospel and carrying on a rather vibrant ministry, according to Acts 28, in addition to writing letters of encouragement to other churches like Philippi. This man has a vibrant ministry going on. And this testimony had a weighty influence on other believers, giving to them courage to proclaim the gospel. Now, notice Paul is not saying of these believers that they had no courage before but rather it is giving them greater courage. So perhaps they were preaching Christ timidly before, and he's coming here to encourage them in his own chains. 
And they have a fresh courage now to be more bold about the gospel. Notice the word fear here. It says that, uh, that most of the brethren trusting the Lord because of imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. And I think that's an indication that in Rome, persecution was beginning to mount. These believers were being intimidated. They were being harassed. And the gospel way, the Christian way, as we just read about in Acts 28, it was receiving opposition. And the Christians there in Rome were kind of withdrawing, tucking themselves protectively back into their shells until Paul arrives. He's thrown in prison. He's got these people coming in and out. And all of a sudden, there's a fresh courage moving around the city of Rome. And Paul's excited about that. Not excited to be chained to a Roman soldier, perhaps, but excited for the opportunity that is presenting him as a gospel minister whose priority is Christ. Paul then identifies two categories of preachers in Rome. Those who preached out of envy and those who preached out of love. Now, in these two groups, he is not exposing truth from error. He's not showing us a heretic versus a, a faithful preacher. These were both groups that were preaching Christ. They were preaching the gospel. What distinguishes these two groups of preachers is that each one of them are expressing a different motive of the heart for their ministry and in their preaching. He compares pure motives with the selfish motives or selfish ambition. Paul's testimony and suffering had an influence on both of these groups. While the motive of the heart is not the main point that Paul is intending to communicate here, verse 18 is the main point. Nonetheless, he brings up these motives as something that came under his influence while he was under his suffering. So we're going to look at those two, beginning with the wrong motives. Um, those that were preaching Christ from envy and strife, Paul goes on to show, verse 17, that these ones were ministering the gospel from selfish ambitions and were hoping to cause Paul distress in his chains or in his imprisonment. What is important to see in this description is that these people were ministering the gospel in some way. I don't think we necessarily have to place these wrong motivated people in the pulpit in the church in Rome necessarily. They may have stood in the pulpit. They could have also been in some sort of teaching ministry. They could have been those meeting in the homes of believers and communicating gospel truth in some way. They could have been out on the streets sharing the gospel with the lost or the unsaved. It doesn't really tell us, but it doesn't necessarily have to include one specific group. This is maybe a broad range or a broad stroke of the brush that's giving to us the picture of these ones that were carrying on some kind of gospel ministry. They were preaching Christ. What we want to understand from this text is that there were people connected with the ministry of the gospel and that were sharing the message of Christ, but doing so from, with faulty motives. They had observed Paul's imprisonment as well as apostolic ministry, and he was preaching, or they were preaching that Paul was doing something wrong. They were giving the impression that Paul was at fault in some way or finding fault in Paul in some measure. We are not told what these preachers were doing to harm Paul, but their actions gave sufficient evidence to reveal the motive of the heart. 
And this is something we need to pay attention to because we tend to bristle a little bit when we hear somebody speaking about the motive of another believer's heart. We tend to think motives are off limits for us because God alone is the one that judges the motive of the heart. And that is a true declaration. But it is equally true that the Word of God has the authority to do so. That the Word of God exposes the motive of the heart. When we meet a man on the street that is committing habitual adultery, we can say without question the motive of their heart is lust. Why? Not because I have the authority to do so, but because the Word of God has declared that motive. It's exposed. That's exactly what the Word does as the sword that divides soul and spirit. So when Paul sees the actions and the words of these men, he knows what the motive of their heart is. And he exposes it here to the Philippian believers. Not because it's within his authority to do so, but because the authority of the Word of God carries that weight. It exposes the motive of the heart. And whatever these preachers of the gospel were doing or saying to cause trouble for Paul, suffering in prison, it was sufficient to identify the motive of selfish ambition. Their actions gave evidence of envy and strife within their hearts. They had witnessed Paul's success in gospel ministry. They observed his authority and expertise with the word of God, with theology and with doctrine. They'd even seen the transforming influence he was having on the Praetorian Guard in Caesar's household. And in some way, they were envious of Paul's success or his character or his perseverance, perhaps, even under suffering and trial and tribulation. Perhaps they wanted the grand influence and audience that they had witnessed in Paul. Look at all the people coming and going out of Paul's confinement we see in Acts 28. They were envious maybe of that attention. They wanted those Christians coming to them for answers. Acts 28 concludes by telling us that in spite of Paul's confinement in chains, he had an active ministry going on here. And in some measure, these preachers with wrong motives were envious of Paul. And they caused strife. In other words, they stirred up some conflict. They stirred up some trouble. And Paul says it comes from their own selfish ambition. In other words, their priority for the gospel was not Christ. It was their own promotion. And what resulted from Paul's success in the gospel stirred up this strife and envy. This suggests that these believers were contending with Paul, striving against his ministry, protesting something they saw in Paul, something Paul was doing or saying. Perhaps they mocked Paul for being a prisoner. Perhaps they said, well, this guy's been too aggressive, too dogmatic. He stirred up a hornet's nest with those Jews. He should have left them alone. After all, he's in prison and we're not. This is an important text, I believe, for the church today because within the legitimate ministries of the church, we can feel these kinds of resentments and envy against those who are having some success and influence with the work of the gospel. We can easily forget that God God himself calls us to be faithful with that measurement that he has given to each of us, as Romans 12 and verse 3 says. God has given to each of us a measure of faith. God calls us to be faithful to that measure that is given to us. 
Wrong motives can move us to say and do things that we know will cause some kind of harm or strife to another minister or another believer because we look at them and we kind of envy the greater success that we perceive they're having than perhaps we're having. But maybe God has proportioned to me a minor success and he's given to you over here a greater success. The success of the ministry entirely is up to the Lord. He's called us to be faithful with our calling. But again, the produce, what springs out of that, belongs to the Lord. And these believers were troubled by what they saw in Paul. They wanted a piece of that action. Wrong motives can move us to say and do things that we know may cause some kind of harm or strife to other believers. Perhaps it's a word spoken that casts just a little shadow of doubt on the character of another believer. Or we do something that shows ourselves to be greater than what this person over here is doing. What I think is very telling about how verses 15 to 17 describe these wrong motives is that Paul's faithfulness to the gospel was influencing the hearts of some to desire selfish ambition. We tend to think if I'm doing a good work, it's going to have nothing but good results, but that is not always true. Sometimes it will stir up these wrong desires, these resentments, this kind of envy or jealousy. And the caution for the church should be clear in this. When we observe the success and influence that God has given to some ministers of the gospel, we need to guard our own hearts from envying that work and be content with the influence and the success that God has given us. We should be concerned only for our own faithfulness with the calling that God has appointed for us. And the influence of a faithful servant of Jesus Christ can have a negative impact on us when our hearts are not right before the Lord. Where ministry is a matter of selfish ambition and not the exaltation of Christ, we can expect strife and the desire to cause distress to other laborers of Christ. And this kind of stuff happens all too often in church communities. We know it. If we're honest, we've probably seen it in ourselves in subtle ways or perhaps less than subtle ways. It's something we must guard ourselves against as we minister together. And I believe this stresses the importance once again of having this priority, the gospel, proclaiming Christ, preaching Christ. We're not promoting self. And if we do, we're going to end up in that selfish ambition that Paul is identifying here. It's a caution to the church. So we're laboring together. We do so with right motives. This brings us to that second group of people, those that had pure motives. In addition to Paul's influence on those with wrong motives, notice that he is also influencing those that had the pure motives. What verse 17 says are pure motives. These ones were responding to Paul's suffering for the gospel with goodwill. And what that goodwill means, in other words, is that they desired the best for Paul. They desired the best for those that they were sharing Christ with. They wanted a good gospel outcome to all of this, knowing that Paul was suffering for some divine purpose. Notice how verse 16 frames that. Knowing that I am appointed. He knows that these people believe this. That he's appointed for the defense of the gospel. 
And then he goes on at the end of chapter 1 once again to remind the Philippians, you've been appointed for these things too. These ones that had right motives knew that Paul had been appointed for chains and for the preaching of Christ in that imprisonment. Notice what separates these preachers from those who had the wrong motives in verse 16. They were preaching out of love. Love. Now we might say what is implied in this is that these believers were preaching out of their love for Christ since their motives were pure, right? And I think in some measure that would be true to say. But the specific context of verse 16 is that their love for Paul knowing that he was appointed for the defense of the gospel. It wasn't merely a love for Christ. They loved Paul. Paul is the, the, the object of the love. Love's the subject in verse 16. Paul's the object of that love. These preachers were being commended for their Christian love toward one another and in specific towards the Apostle Paul. And the subject of love is a matter of great importance to the Apostle Paul. It was years before that he wrote that great treatise on love. And I want you to turn back to 1 Corinthians 13 and note again the wording that Paul uses in writing of love. Just in the beginning verses. First Corinthians 13 verses 1 to 3. Paul says, if I speak with the tongues of men of angels and do not have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned but do not have love, it profits me nothing. What Paul is saying in these three verses is showing more the negative side of ministry without love. Those that had the right motives in preaching had love. Those that had wrong motives did not have love. And such a man or woman that preaches from Christ in a heart of love is not nothing. Somebody that preaches out of love is is worth something to Christ. They're not nothing, but they're worth something to Christ. And further, they will be profiting from their own ministry of love. And we need to observe here another truth that flows from this passage to be observed in Philippians chapter 1. Those who preach apart from love themselves accomplish nothing, but God is not limited by the preaching of that word. That preacher, if you go back to 1 Corinthians 13 and look at those three verses, it's that individual that suffers. But God is not limited. And you turn to Philippians chapter 1 and you see those that were preaching apart from love, God is not limited. Rather, Paul rejoices that whether in false pretense or in truth, the name of Christ is being proclaimed. God is not limited. So he can take those wrong motives and he can cause something to happen. He can take the right motives and he can cause something to happen. The minister that preaches without love, he will suffer. But Christ will not suffer. And this is what brings such joy to the heart of Paul. We're going to look at this more next week. This is what causes this man to say whether they've got wrong motives or right motives. I rejoice because Christ is proclaimed and that is my priority in life. And it's till we come to that 18th verse, the rest of it doesn't make sense. How can you rejoice in somebody that's preaching with wrong motives? 
Well, when you're a man like Paul that has this priority, you know that the name of Christ is being proclaimed and God will do what he pleases with that proclamation. Now, I want to just quickly close this morning or end our time in the Word with just a few observations from our text. When the exaltation of Christ is our priority, we can suffer in chains, we can suffer at the criticisms or distresses of others, we can endure any kind of circumstance of life because our great objective in life is the greater progress of the gospel. That's the theme I'm hoping we take hold of this morning. Our great objective in life is the greater progress of the gospel. That's our priority right there as believers. Secondly, this testimony by Paul embraces the reality that when our lives belong to Christ, every circumstance in life belongs to Christ. When our life belongs to Christ, every circumstance in our life belongs to Christ. Is that not evident with Paul? The church probably wondered, what is God up to? Chaining the apostle to the Gentiles in this dingy little house somewhere in Rome, taken out of active ministry. What is God thinking? Well, far from Paul being chained, those people were chained to the gospel. And God had his purposes. Oh, that we could look at our own circumstances that way. I'm in these circumstances because God has a purpose. And if my priority is Christ, then these circumstances belong to him. And he will be pleased to do whatever he wants with them. And third, exalting Christ in any ministry must be characterized by love. And I think we know that by now. Exalting Christ in any ministry must be characterized by love. It is never enough to say that we serve God because we love God. Beloved, let us love one another, John writes. For love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. It is not enough to say, I'm serving Christ because I love God. We are to be serving Christ because we love God and we love one another. If we know God and we know the God of love, it demands that we love each other. When we are serving Christ and advancing his name, whether out in the world or in the church or before our families, our motives are never pure apart from loving each other. And our love for each other will give evidence that we have been born of God. Father, we pray that you would take these words of the apostle and plant them deeply within our hearts. This is the beginning of a new year. And perhaps for the church too, this is a time for us to renew our commitment, making your son the priority of our lives, making the proclamation and the preaching of Christ our chief objective and the greatest end to this new year. Give us courage. Father, give us your love. Teach us to be bold with the gospel. Teach us to rejoice in all of our circumstances, whether those are joyful or distressing, knowing that you're at work proclaiming your son's gospel through our suffering. Let it be so in your church. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.